Where'd you get it? I found it. I find that answer vague and unconvincing. Trust goes both ways. You're letting her keep it. Would you like to know the probability of her using it against you? It's high. Let's get quiet. It's very high. Uh, hello everyone and welcome to a little special bonus episode of the Shot Reverse Shot podcast. We said last week it was the penultimate episode but really this one is the penultimate episode because there's absolutely no way we could have let uh, a Star Wars movie go by without us talking about it and talk about it we will because we're going to be talking about uh, a Star Wars story uh, in the shape of Rogue One, the very first standalone film from Lucasfilm and Disney in their infinite wisdom, have decided to fill the off years of the saga with, you know, standalone stories, and they will for, you know, forever. We'll have one every other year, so get used to it. Just to warn you, this podcast will have more spoilers than an Essex car park in McDonald's. Uh, So if you haven't seen the film, stop listening now, go and see it, and then uh, come back and join us at a later date. Um, Ed, um, was the force strong with this one? I think the sort the force was uh, relatively strong with this one. I didn't enjoy it as much on first blush as I enjoyed the Force Awakens. I think that was a more satisfying experience, but it was also on um, the counterweight to that. It was a film that I felt took a lot more risks than the Force Awakens did, mm-hmm. and whether or not those risks paid off is another matter. But it certainly did some things that I wouldn't have expected people making a Star Wars movie to do. Yeah, um, it was Gareth Edwards, the man behind uh, Godzilla and Monsters, which, uh, and he was in. He was kind of in the director's chair. He was a very exciting appointment. I think we both agreed, didn't we, that mm-hmm. he would be the perfect person to direct something like this, someone who uh, is going to come at the story from a, maybe a grittier angle, a, a, something a bit more kind of down and dirty, and... Uh, for some of the film, uh, that style is is very appropriate. But um, I think one of the things that's probably going to dominate this uh, conversation um, is perhaps that the, that whole talk about reshoots that we we did kind of talk about earlier in the year about how it doesn't necessarily mean curtains for a film, and in this this sense, it um, it really didn't mean curtains for a film. They've, whatever they've done clearly improved it, but whatever they did massively changed the narrative and the story um and that's all entirely based on the fact that we saw like four or five trailers for the film and lots of tv spots beforehand and upwards of 90 percent of that footage is not in the film and the stuff that you do see in the trailers is uh like completely different yeah and and some of the most indelible images from those early trailers were removed as well but specifically i'm thinking of Ben Mendelssohn's character walking like uh, kind of up to his knees through water with his cloak soaked behind him as he walks towards kind of a fiery wreckage, which was mm-hmm. uh, suggestive of a certain degree of chaos and mania and kind of the, the essentially the money shot of the first trailer, which was Jin played by Felicity Jones 
standing up in a room of lights that kind of appearing behind her. And that room, that, that tunnel with all the lights going on does appear in the film and she, it, it happens, it appears to be towards the climax, but based on that, it looks like the climax of the film originally had her on her own. Yeah. Uh, which uh, isn't how it kind of turns out in the final, in the final product. Mm, yeah, I've kind of gone pretty deep on this actually because um, having left the theatre and gone home and kind of thought about it, I kind of disappeared down an internet rabbit hole and uh, obviously it being Star Wars and it being the internet, um, there's actually some pretty impressive detective work that's been done where people have mm. pieced, pieced together um, bits from the trailers and the TV spots and the sizzle reel that was announced at Comic-Con and shown and gone like, well, hang on, in this scene... Like Jin is storming the beach and she's got the Death Star plans in her hand. Um, if that was the case, then how on earth did they restructure the ending to be the opposite of that, where other people storm the beach and she's in like some tower trying to get out of a out of a kind of like a data bank essentially? It's it's kind of crazy um, that like we'll get to this, but like the the, the kind of the strongest bit of the film um, for me was the last kind of forty five minutes. I felt like. Um, the the action was kind of relentless. It was I would say it was definitely the best action of any of any Star Wars film. Um, the space battle is pretty incredible, and that bit is kind of like put together so perfectly, and the ending comes together so perfectly that I'm absolutely stunned that it appears that the end is what has been reshot and restructured. And it surprises me because what I had the biggest problem with in this film was the beginning. The first hour I felt was very slow out of the blocks, uh, as clunky as a shoe in a blender, um, <laughs> just uh, kind of leaden, uh, flat, um, in some instances, really strange. And I would I felt like that first half was the, the half that had been chopped around and, and kind of messed about. But it's crazy to think that it's worked out the other way. Yeah, I mean, uh, we for me, it had a similar structural problem that Edwards's Godzilla did, which was Godzilla start has a lot of kind of charismatic actors in it in in interesting roles who then don't really do that much, and then the film takes a really long time to get to a stunning finale, and mm-hmm. uh, I I feel like Rogue One uh, handles its kind of more stodgy beginning better than Godzilla did just because it has more charismatic leads well it has charismatic leads which which Godzilla didn't Godzilla had Aaron Taylor Johnson who uh I'm sure has good work in him but in that film was just kind of leaden and was not given much in the way of personality Mm -hmm. and I feel like you know like Felicity Jones is a solid solid central performer Jager Luna's good as as Cassian Andor or the rebel pilot or operative who is sent along with her to try and uh nominally to find her father and retrieve him but actually to kill him and you know and and uh there's a lot of other kind of great actors who show up donnie donnie yen who's probably my highlight of the whole movie i've i've I really enjoyed his performance and both comedically and the fact that he beats a lot of people up which is mm. you know fun and you know it has all of these charismatic actors but the script a lot of the times feels a little boilerplate or they don't do enough to they veer too much into the kind of the grimness of it all Mm. and weirdly the finale which spoilers for everyone that has everyone dying has a lot more life and energy to it than the the the, uh, the scenes of them just kind of sat around 
talking. The scenes where, you know, if you look at the older Star Wars movies like Luke and Han and Obi-Wan all being on the Millennium Falcon travelling together, they use those downtime moments to establish a bit of camaraderie and to establish different points of view. And mm-hmm. while there is some of that in the downtime in Rogue One, it's never it doesn't really flesh out. It just gives you a rough sense of who these characters are, but then leaves it really up to the actors to sell it rather than the writing. Mm. It was it struggles at the beginning because it moves at such a breathless pace to try and introduce mm. everybody um, that we fe- it feels a little scattershot. Uh, it also feels like, I'd say, that one of the things that was definitely changed in the reshoots, if you think about how uh, Felicity Jones's character was introduced in that first trailer, that she was some kind of like um, like criminal agitator with a rap sheet that's really long and they read it out, it seems like they've smoothed her out a bit and that she's a bit more relatable and rather less, less of a kind of like outlaw, um, mm. which actually kind of makes her less of an interesting character and makes her decision to just suddenly join the rebellion um, kind of less earned, I guess. Yeah, because the way she's presented, they kind of make her seem like a more politically motivated uh, Han Solo, basically. Someone mm-hmm. who ha- is decent at heart, but maybe isn't particularly doesn't particularly care that much about geopolitical situations or intergalactic uh, political situations. Whereas this it is more that she is just reluctantly dragged from sequence to sequence and even though you know she's she's still quite a a compelling enough character because we we get to see her the key moments in her life essentially and we get a sense of her as as a character who's just kind of searching for something it's the the version of her that appears in that trailer does seem a little more spiky and like she's got a little more uh, charisma to her than than the version of the character that we ended up with Mm. And before we kind of carry on banging on about how what was in the trailer didn't end up in the film, there was actually a, there's actually a flip side to this in that I feel like so many films uh, are kind of blown by the trailer in the sense mm. you, you kind of feel like you get a complete sense of it, whereas in essence we got something that represents the tone and the feel of the film accurately, but yet none yes. of the content, which is, is that a good thing? I would say it's a good thing... In instances where, like, the, the, the example I always go to, because it's maybe my favourite trailer of all time, is the trailer for A Serious Man, mm-hmm. where they just repeat lines and dialogue from the movie over and over again until they form this, this kind of weird, menacing rhythm. And you, when you watch that movie, that trailer, you have a perfect sense of what that movie is. Like, it's, it's unmistakable what you're in for, but it also tells you almost nothing about what the plot is about. Mm-hmm. It just tells you this is a man in some sort of crisis and this movie is going to explore that crisis. And it's different with Rogue One because they essentially showed us a different movie. Mm-hmm. It had the same tone as the movie that we got and it had the same actors, but the stuff that we would intuit from seeing the the first trailer just isn't there. And mm-hmm. so it's it's good in that it didn't really ruin anything, but it's also weird because you're saying like, they they kind of presented us with something that we ended up not actually in the the truest sense of the word actually getting. Yeah, yeah. So um, we have a clunky beginning uh, to the film. Uh, we have uh, characters that feel uh, shallow because we haven't spent that much time getting to know them, and we are told about them more than we kind of see them doing stuff. Um, and then we get to one of my biggest problems with the film, which is. 
Um, Forrest Whitaker and his character Saw Guerrero. Saw Guerrero, for those who aren't massive nerds, uh, is a character <laughs> from the uh, Star Wars cartoon Clone Wars. Um, he was introduced in the latter series of that when the by which time the that show had started to become kind of like vaguely good um, and less of a kids show. Uh, well, less of a kiddie show, should we say, more with, you know, perhaps slightly darker elements in. And he, he was an interesting character back then, but not really something you thought, oh, I'd like to hang a film around him. But here we are, we've we've got a, uh, a company that wants to build a huge universe where everything's connected, fine. We've got Forrest Whitaker, Whitaker playing this character, Saw Guerrero, great. I have an on-running kind of debate about Forrest Whitaker because I'm not sure whether he's an amazing actor or a terrible actor, because mm-hmm. he seems to flip-flop effortlessly between those two extremes, and he is fucking awful in Rogue One. Absolutely yeah. terrible. Like, I've got no idea, like, what he's saying. This, the, the, like, the one dialogue scene he has with Jin is, like, really flat and really strangely, uh, like... Um, I, th- I thought that was a massive candidate to have been reshot, because it's just pieced together in like two reverse shots um, and it's just really clunky, awkward dialogue about, hey, the last time I saw you, I left you in this bunker with a knife and you're like, oh, I wanted you to survive and then oh, let's just move on and talk about something else. Um, and I don't really get a feel about who he is or what he stands for or any of this stuff. We see his rebels going out and doing things, but I feel like no connection between them and him. And then we have, uh, sorry, this happened slightly before he's uh, meeting with Jin. The moment I like to call Saw Gerrera's truth squid, <laughs> in which Saw Gerrera, for some reason, takes Riz Ahmed's character and kind of has him tortured by some kind of weird giant squid. And the giant squid, he says, you're going to lose your mind when you get tired. You'll find, we'll, get, we'll find out the truth from you when this squid has got his got tentacles in your ears, but you're going to lose your mind. The squid... Uh, does his thing with Riz Ahmed and it cuts away like kind of awkwardly. Then we come back and I don't know what Saw Guerrero has done with the information. They've kept Riz Ahmed around and Riz Ahmed hasn't lost his mind because they're like, who are you? And he's like, oh yeah, I'm a pilot. My name's Bodie Rook. So I don't really know what was going on there, but it felt really, really shoddy. Yeah, it felt like maybe a, almost a vestigial plot point. Mm-hmm. Like in the original version of the movie, he had a bigger role or the whole sequence on Jeddah was more significant than it ended up being. But they, in the kind of the restructuring of the movie, they found that they didn't really have much of a place for it. So it's really reduced to a point where all you get is a sense that he's kind of crazy and he's too extreme for the rebellion, but he's on the same side. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, that's an interesting idea in and of itself, the idea that the rebellion is not this unified front. There's lots of people with different agendas trying to take on the empire, and that's that's interesting. But yeah, his he doesn't really do much to contribute other than to be someone they have to go to before they can get to find uh, 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 Felicity Jones, uh, Jin's character's father, played by Mads Mikkelsen or Mass Mikkelsen, as it's apparently pronounced, even though I prefer Mads. Mm. Um, yeah, so they they just have to try and find him because he's got a message from Mads and then from that they can find out where he is. But also they seem to know where he is already. Yeah. That's information that seems fairly easy to find. 
So, yeah, his whole thing seems to be more just we want to set up. It's more... It's one of those cases where you can really see the, the gears turning and that's, OK, we need to introduce Donnie Yen and Wan Jiang and then we need to show that the Death Star is operational and that it demonstrates its power by destroying this city that is apparently the kind of spiritual home of the Jedi. How do we do that? Oh, they need to go to a character and then that character is Saw Gerrera and then he dies. Mm. So he doesn't have a huge impact. He doesn't do a huge amount with the role. And you end up wondering what really was the point. Mm. The only, the only, like you got a few. The, the the battle that takes place in Jeddah is really good. Yeah, that's a really fun sequence, and I like the fact that they, in in the way, in the same way that the the original Star Wars movies kind of played as a funhouse mirror version of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. in that it was told from the perspective of the Viet Cong, essentially. Uh, I liked the idea that the the kind of battle that we see in the streets of Jeddah is more or less a battle that you would see on the streets of of uh, Iraq, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. in Iraq, of attacking American troops. Yeah, uh, which is quite an interesting, subversive take of local people or or reb- politically driven rebels attacking and and invading and occupying force in this kind of ragtag, but ultimately ultimately futile way but doing so just to kind of give them a bloody nose nose if nothing else uh and that was that was like really interesting but there's not much other than that from that entire sequence that you could point to as being completely essential Mm. and it's it's weird that like it kind of almost works if they paint Saw Gerrera as this kind of mythical uh kind of like Robin Hood style revolutionary Mm. And there's this kind of anticipation when Bodhi Rook is being taken to him by the the I like the really like the bounty hunter. He's called uh, Edrio Two Tubes, um, mm-hmm. uh, um, and those guys and they're kind of taking him. And Bodhi Rook talks about Saw Gerrera like he knows who he is, but you know as if he's this kind of like uh, legendary outlaw. But we've got like ten minutes to establish all this, and he's not like he's a famous character from. Like he is a character from the Star Wars canon, but he's not like super famous. No one knows who he is because no one mm. watched Clone Wars up until season five. So like it's something that feels like should have taken a lot longer to set up, and then by the time it is set up, he's gone anyway. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole film to me felt like you know when like it, like with uh, um, Carlos the Olivia Sayas thing where something starts off as a mini-series for television and then they cut it down to a theatrical version. Yeah. That's kind of what this felt like, because all of the characters, what glimpses you got of characters were often kind of interesting or they made you think, oh, you know, I bet, you know, with more time you could get something really, really good out of that. But it felt like it was cut down for time and so we we felt like we were looking at the theatrical cut of Rogue One, but there's actually like a six-hour TV version that's going to air someday. Mm, Yeah. Well, I I really struggled through the first um, the first kind of twenty five thirty minutes, and then I felt like it picked up a bit, but it felt kind of like perfunctory, moving between plot points. This happens, this happens, this happens. But then we got to after the scene where uh, Mads Mikkelsen's character dies, and they are flying off the kind of rocky planet where the Death Star plans are. Uh, the the scientists are being held. Sorry, um, after they fly off, and, and there's that scene on the ship where Cassian Andor reveals 
you know, why they fight and why Jin should join the rebellion and how everyone on the ship has lost something to the Empire and all that stuff. That's the point where I kind of started to get on board with it. And I kind mm-hmm. of just wish I wished we would have got to some meaty character stuff earlier rather than just um, you know, road mapping through uh, you know, glamorous locations. Yeah, especially because they assembled such an amazing cast of actors mm-hmm. who all do really good work and, and even during those the, the the long years of the opening hour or the opening thirty minutes or so. You know, there's still some fun stuff like from Alan Tudyk's character uh, K2SO, I believe mm-hmm. is his name, who's a overly literal uh, reprogrammed Imperial droid who gets a lot of fun deadpan comedy from the fact that he doesn't have any way of hiding the fact that he dislikes Jin. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point saying it wouldn't be too bad if they shot her, aimed for him and shot her. And like I say, I think Donnie Yen has some very funny things as this blind guy who has an affinity for the force maybe not an actual jedi but he certainly uses it to his advantage in you know beating people up in kind of great choreographed sequences but he also gets some funny line lines like when saw guerrera's men take them hostage and put bags over everyone's heads and they put one over him and he says are you kidding me i'm blind (laughs) uh which is very funny that got a very very big laugh that that and the line where k2so joins the bait the joins the rebellion essentially mm-hmm. when they go off and he, she's like oh I'm glad you joined me and he was like yeah Cassian said I had to <laughs> um, which was a funny line let's talk about um, maybe some other things that didn't perhaps work for me Ben Mendelssohn's character felt like he felt less of a uh, kind of oh less less of a kind of tyrannical um, uh, kind of maniac who would be behind something like the Death Star. Um, he felt kind of really neutered, I guess. Um, mm. If he wasn't the highest ranking officer there, he kind of just seemed ultimately powerless. Yeah. I think there was an interesting aspect they could have played there. I would have liked the idea of an Imperial officer who fucks up royally and then the entire film is driven by his attempts to try and cover it up. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to be kind of what they were going for, but because, and this was kind of a, a major sticking point for me, and I think a lot of people, the fact that they uh, brought Peter Cushing back to life in terrifying CGI plasticity mm-hmm. to play to play Grand Moff Tarkin again, essentially, that meant that you had a figure of authority there all the time who could call him out on the fact that he was failing. Yeah. And I, I thought that... You know, if you wanted to bring back Peter Cushing as, as I've been referring to him as Peter Cush-ish, because <laughs> yeah. he's he's not quite there. There is a little bit of the Polar Express about him. Yeah. If you wanted to bring him back, you could just have him as a hologram who's kind of occasionally uh, peeking in on what's what's going on with uh, Orson Krennic and seeing exactly what's going on, and he is constantly lying and trying to figure out how to get himself out of this situation. But instead, because he's always there, you're right, he does feel like this neutered, frustrating character and frustrated character. And, like, that's... That in itself, like, if you were doing a a Star Wars anthology, like, short stories, if you wanted to tell a story about a frustrated Imperial middleman who's always just kind of fucking up and just trying to do it, that would be be interesting in and of itself. But as a villain in a movie, but and even, like... At, at, at a certain point, like a secondary or even tertiary villain, 
because he's constantly being displaced by people higher up in the uh, chain of command, such as obviously Tarkin, but also when he goes to Baradur to see Darth Vader. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he just you you cast an actor who is great at playing villains who I think could play like a frustrated bureaucrat or a frustrated officer who's who's trying to make a name for himself really well and just constantly find ways to take the focus off of him and he really suffered from for, uh, compared to what he should have been because like from the trailers or even just from the promotional stills of just him in his outfit he looked like he could be a really really impressive figure mm yeah and you touched on it and we're not going to be able to get away with not talking about it um the cgi peter cushing when the scene started it started in a really cool way with uh ben mendelson's character approaching from behind and you saw the reflection in the face and the, mm. in the in the kind of the uh the viewing panel of uh, of the spaceship that they were on and you saw the reflection you kind of saw the familiar hairline and the stance and the voice and you were like oh cool they're gonna do like a little scene with peter cushing and they're gonna kind of just hint at it and how cool would that be in a dramatic sense they're like Cushing's character, Tarkin, won't even turn around and look at this guy. And, you know, he's so dismissive of him. And, you know, this is a really cool kind of power thing. And then, nope, we're going to turn around and we're going to look right at this special effect. Right in the eye. We are, we are going to highlight it. and We're going to just spend... We're going to linger on it, in fact. Let's uh, look at it so, you know, we can get the full Uncanny Valley effect. Um, which is weird. And this is this is probably going to be something that's quite... Um, quite uh, common, I think, with people watching Rogue One. We came out of that. Uh, me and my friends went to see it. There was kind of six of us. We're all kind of big Star Wars fans, plus my wife, uh, who <laughs> do like Star Wars. Don't get me wrong, um, but you know she doesn't. You know she doesn't know who Max Rebo is, and uh, she was just like, we were all going, "God, that bit with Tarkin was weird." And she was like, "What?" And I was like, oh, yes, "You know, CGI, CGI face, so like, you know, Peter Cushing, like, you know, he's." You know, he's been dead for 25 years. Um, you know what I mean? He's, and she was just like, I didn't even notice. And I was like, well, how do you mean? She was like, well, I thought, I, I could tell that it wasn't quite right. I thought maybe they'd, I figured because he was an old actor, I figured, because she didn't know he was dead. Like, yeah. she was like, maybe they got him in and they, they CGI'd his face to make him look like he was a bit younger. Like in like, uh, the third X-Men film. Or like, uh, you know, like Michael Douglas in Ant-Man. Yes, yeah. She's actually really cleverly done. Uh, yeah. And really, really effective. So yeah, I thought she she was like, oh, I, th- I thought maybe that was it. And I was like, I, I bet you there's a lot of people who aren't aren't even going to be able to notice, but they, they must do because it's just not quite right. I think yeah, I think people will feel because because that's the whole thing with the uncanny valleys that you look at it and something about it just in your subconscious makes you think this. I don't know if I can trust this. Mm-hmm. Like some part of the lizard brain makes you feel like you're encountering something that is going to hurt you. And like Peter Cushing always had that anyway when he was alive, but mm. it's, uh, you know with the the added uh, CGI ness, I think it's it's distracting. But also, I think it is the sort of thing that will only probably matter to people who know who Peter Cushing is mm. if they know that he's been dead since nineteen ninety four and the, and what they've done. So it probably won't bother most people as much as it it certainly bothered me. And and, and by the end of the film, I had actually got used to it because. Yeah. He's such a presence to the detriment of of Ben Mendelsohn's character, but he's he's in it so often that by the end of it, you're just kind of like, oh yeah, that's that's we're we're in the realm of the future where dead actors can come back and reprise roles. Marilyn Monroe can be in 
you know, ads for Snickers or whatever. <laughs> you know, there's you know they can bring these people back, uh, and it's terrifying. And we're in a a post a post life a post death society apparently. But mm. um, the one that was actually way worse for me, and again spoilers, <laughs> people should know that we're well into spoiler territory now. Was Leia showing up at the end? Yeah, because and that one I don't think it was um, worse than Tarkin, but because it literally was the last shot of a human face in the movie and it was so pivotal and it was the very, very end of it and it was the the note the film ended on, it just took me out of what was otherwise kind of a very emotional moment because we've watched all these characters who we've grown to know and and like and care for over the course of, of two and a bit hours all die horribly in rapid succession. We've We've seen the rebellion have a this kind of really bittersweet victory where they've escaped with the plans for the Death Star but so many people have lost their lives and been and so much damage has been done and, and all of that. And then suddenly it's like, oh, you know, this things look bad and then, you know, CGI layer face and then credits. It's like, mm-hmm. oh well, this I'm not really sure. This is a kind of a bit of a whiplash to it all. And and that's another one where like like you with saying you know with the first appearance of Tarkin where you think oh they're going to hint at it I thought oh they're showing like the back of the back of Princess Leia's head maybe we'll hear her voice and that 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 would have been enough for me I feel like a, a less is more approach could have had could have yielded the same emotional response if you just heard Princess Leia say hope you know that would have been that for me I think that would have been just as effective if not more effective than the camera spinning around and showing us the slightly not quite right CGI'd Carrie Fisher face. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned it earlier, um, and it was perhaps another one of my sticking points uh, in this film. Um, the first scene in which Darth Vader is reintroduced, mm-hmm. um, where he is living in the Tower of Orthanc, uh, <laughs> on in Lava Land, um, which instantly just jerked me right out of the film because I was like... I know this is Star Wars, but this, you know, why would anyone live in this fucking castle? <laughs> um, and I know that it's based on some original Ralph McQuarrie uh, artwork, and it is canonically where what he kind of got up to. He lived on a he lived in a castle in Mustafar, apparently, where he got burnt to death. Which I wouldn't want to hang around in the place that you know my old mentor had like cut off my arms and legs and left me to die, uh, burning painfully on a on a lava riverbank. Um, you would want to live in a giant castle that's a really easy target for any uh, enterprising X-wing pilot with mm. a death wish. Yeah, or I mean, even if I if I'd have spent any time around lava, and <laughs> I'd have been any, I wouldn't want to have it like as a water feature in my garden. Um, but anyway, we have this really cool scene where like some kind of monk uh, disturbs Vader in he, while he's in a Baxter tank and he's kind of floating around. And he's surrounded by like some uh, royal guards, which doesn't make any sense, but that they they're cool, so I'll I've kind of let that go. And they don't resolve they don't resolve the long standing canonical issue of whether or not he has a dick anymore. Oh yeah, good point. I want we'll to see. wait for the comic to find out. Yep. Uh, or you know, yeah, yeah. We're not going to get any kind of answers from episode eight, I'm sure, um, unless like you know Adam Driver keeps it in a box or something. <laughs> <laughs> like he went digging around Endor for uh, for Darth Vader's John Thomas. Um, who knows where the fuck was we going with? Yes, so he has a scene with Ben Mendelsohn. Ben Mendelsohn flies to to like uh, Barada for no reason, and they have this 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 kind of awkward conversation. And you can tell the whole thing is the whole point of this scene is to get Darth Vader into the movie. A 
and B, to have a big Darth Vader-y scene, right? Mm. And my issue with it is it's a great intro, the way they introduce him with like his silhouette and stuff and the way yeah. he enters the room. That's super cool. But this, the scene's meaningless. Mm. Um, he does something that when he when he chokes Ben Mendelsohn using the force. And the thing is, when he does that in A New Hope for the first time, that's really terrifying. And that's really kind of horrible the way he does it. And in this, he does it whilst making the worst pun of all time. He says something like, yeah. don't choke on your ambition or something. And I was just like, well, hey, that doesn't make any kind of any syntax sense or grammatical sense. It's not a phrase. It's not, you're not, you, you know, what are you talking about? And I mean, if he would, if Mendelssohn had gone to the tower to say, I'm thinking about launching a new brand of chocolate bars called Ambition. Um, and he was eating one and he choked on it. Then you could say, don't choke on your ambition. And even then it wouldn't make that sense. And that's a super specific example. Um, but so they, and I was like, is Darth Vader just made a pun? Cause that's awful. And that scene just complete. I was just like, well, I mean, that's really, really kind of shitty way to use Vader in this film. But then on the flip side, Darth Vader gets the best scene in the whole fucking movie. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, that's the the big problem I have with that sequence, other than the fact it seems like a really expensive waste of time <laughs> uh, to, like, to go to the effort of building a set, animating, like, this, this massive castle and, you know, doing a back-to-tank and everything for a scene that has absolutely no impact on the story in any major way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like, when Vader shows up at the end and slaughters a load of rebel guys... Um, sashaying down the down the corridor like he's in a walk off with Derek Zoolander, mm. like the way that he's introduced it, which is like these guys are they're training their guns on a door, the door explodes and then it's filled with dark smoke and then suddenly you see the red lightsaber. Mm-hmm. That to me says this was how Vader was meant to be introduced in the movie. Yeah, because uh- that is an amazing way. That that is a moment that's meant to make people in the theater go, oh shit. Uh, you know, it is meant to get a big reaction. And the power of that is lost if you've already seen Vader early on in the movie. And that makes me wonder if that... Again, we don't want to harp on reshoots, but that makes me wonder if Disney executives saw that and they said, we need to have more Vader in this. Mm. Uh, And the fact that it starts with a compelling image, and and that's, I think, the thing that defines a lot of Gareth Edwards' work, is that he's very good at defining, at kind of striking imagery. Mm but not necessarily that good on the follow-up. And it makes me wonder if the image of him kind of silhouetted, like maybe the whole scene was just that. It was to introduce that and to give a hint of Vader and then the rest of it was Tony Gilroy doing kind of a ham-fisted dialogue scene. Mm. Uh, and that whole sequence was was reconstructed. But, you know, the, the image of the red lightsaber and him strutting down the corridor and c- cutting everyone up, to me, does say this was probably a Gareth Edwards bit. Because... Yeah. It says so much about you know any dialogue, mm. and when the initial reactions of people kind of um, who had seen the premiere were saying they were saying kind of Darth, you know the film's quite dark, and mm. I suppose it is because everyone dies. Um, but that scene with Vader on uh, the like the Rebel cruiser with in the corridor, that's fucking brutal, man. He just mm. like he just he goes to town. He's just wailing on those guys and just. Yeah, and it's amazing, and also the, the testament to how good that scene was is that one of one of the troopers has got the plans in his hand on a little disc, mm. and I was in my head screaming, "Get the fucking plans out! Get the plans out!" Even though 
I've watched an entire trilogy of films, like predated on the fact that they got the plans out. <laughs> uh, but I was completely like, holy shit, man, there's no way they're getting away from this guy. And there's this kind of amazing thing where there's just like a sliver of door being open and he manages to get it into someone's hands. Just to, And then, yeah, I'm. this is going to lead me to a, like another point now where the, the that last bit of the film ends so breathlessly and moves... Um, it moves us to literally the point that a new hope begins, mm-hmm. which is not what I expected. I didn't know. I didn't realize it would take us that close. I mean, I don't know whether it was a matter of minutes or a matter of hours that passes between the end of Rogue One and, and the start of a new hope. But what I didn't realize is just how much I wanted to watch a new hope immediately after. And I think that Disney perhaps missed a trick by not scheduling like some new hope screenings because that kind of would make an amazing double now. It would, yeah. I think it would be... I'm looking forward to watching them both back-to-back at some point in the future because it does... Even though tonally they are wildly different because, like you say, the, the you know, this one is pretty pretty grim. It's the first... Like A lot of people have been making fun of Tom, Todd Vanderwerf on Twitter because he wrote a, a Vox, an article for Vox about the movie where he said that it was the first Star Wars movie to acknowledge that the franchise was about war. And everyone's been kind of like, oh, you know, it says war in the title and there's war used a lot in the, the opening crawls. But I think what he was, what he's getting to is that all the other Star Wars movies are high-flying adventure films in which the brutality of war is of an abstract. Like, the deaths are fairly quick and easy, and even when characters are hurt, it's taking place in kind of a pulp sci-fi tradition. Whereas mm-hmm. this one is, like, as close to a Vietnam War movie or a World War II war movie as you're going to get. And so seeing them back to back, it would be a tonal whiplash to go from the kind of the bleakness of this and the, the violence of this to the more clean cut Flash Gordon equality of the original Star Wars. But, you know, it does get you excited for the next chapter of the story. And for once, you don't have to wait two years to see what the next chapter of the story is because we've all got it. We all mm. know what the next chapter of the story is. Yeah, yeah. Another another thing on Vader, just I was going to say, I think this is the first time since the original Star Wars that Vader's actually been scary. Mm, definitely. Because in the first one, he's such an unknowable, just he's just an obelisk of danger. He's just like constantly um, there to be menacing, and then like as the series goes on, because you know learn more about him, he's he becomes like a more of a tragic figure and not necessarily terrifying. So maybe maybe he's he's a little he's a, definitely a threat in The Empire Strikes Back, but he's uh he's not really been since then whereas that scene in the that scene in the uh in the corridor of the rebel ship is like like a scene in a zombie movie when or, or any monster movie where people are trapped and they can't open the door and the thing is just tearing through people uh and it's just it's just really effectively done and i was uh, i i felt you know after the prequels and after the fact that he's become such an icon of pop culture who's been kind of you know used in um youtube supercuts where they put in james old jones's dialogue from coming to america in it and things like that <laughs> he's been a figure of fun for so long that i didn't think you could make darth vader scary again and uh you know yeah <laughs> i was proved wrong because he's genuinely terrifying in that sequence mm, absolutely part of uh, a thing that i brought up a few weeks ago when we talked about um, the casting of Donald Glover in the Han Solo movie was I was saying that you know there's never been a greater time to be um, a Star Wars fan because we've got so much content uh, to use a buzzword of uh, of today um, coming down the pipe. Um, we've got a lot of 
cool people working on a lot of cool films and a lot of cool projects. There's comics, there's books. We are spoilt for Star Wars stuff, but I did say that I felt um, a little weary um, mm. and a little suspicious of essentially just remixing elements of the traditional, the original trilogy, um, and I wanted to see some fresh new things. Um, now, we've got to the point where technology has allowed Lucasfilm and Disney to literally cut and paste bits of the old films into the new films. Mm. And we got CGI Leia and CGI Tarkin. We got um, a whole bunch of uh, Rebel X-Wing pilots from the original trilogy um, yeah. cut and pasted into this, the battle. So we got a red one um, and I think, I can't remember the call sign, but another, another one of the pilots. And as soon as I saw it, like I initially got like a, a, like a nerd chill straight away. Um, and I was like, that's cool. And then I was just like, hang on, this is exactly what I'm kind of pushing against. And I'm not sure, and I kind of wanted to ask you about this, do, I'm not sure whether Lucasfilm kind of either know or whether they underestimate just how much people will go with the new characters um, and how we don't really need the old ones. Like if... Like there was no need for us to see C three PO and R two D two, uh, in in Rogue One, and it was just super super unnecessary and and you know kind of horrible fan service, but I I kind of just wonder whether or not like whether they understand fully that like if you give the new characters a chance, people will go with it, and I would rather have had all of the old characters cut out of Rogue One, and you know just you know why not just dedicate more time to making these ones like you know, spending more time with them and, you know, getting to know them and like them. Because in the whole, I really liked all the new characters we were introduced to. Yes, for me, it, they are... That desire for what is essentially obsessive continuity mm -hmm. is not very far removed from George Lucas doing the special editions. And particularly from him doing, like, oh, let's put Hayden Christensen in at the end of Return of the Jedi... Mm -hmm. It's less obnoxious because we are seeing a new film that has old elements crafted onto it, as opposed to an older movie that is being completely changed by the addition of new elements. So it's not it's not as bad. But you know, if we're going on the sliding scale, you know, they are they are part of the same problem, which is the idea for that. Oh, everything has to line up. They can't be. We can't accept that this is like a messy work of art that doesn't make a hundred percent sense because the guy who made it was making a tribute to serials that used to not make a huge amount of sense and they were driven more by a sense of excitement and emotion than necessarily by narrative cohesiveness mm -hmm. and you know the the desire to make everything line up which then veers into oh let's have ponda Barba in this scene which is another one that definitely didn't need to happen yeah um, and makes very little sense given that the city is blown up literally hours later yeah, it's like, oh, of all the people who managed to escape from there, it was those two guys, and then one of them got his hand chopped off. That's just very unfortunate. Mm. Um, but, but like, oh, the, the, there were lots of there were little things like the fact there's a jar of blue milk in the opening scene, which is kind of a a nice little touch, and you know that it, it was cool seeing the oh the, the Death Star crew having the same outfits from the original movie, so there was a sense of continuity there. But every time they went out of their way to have scenes like the scene of Bail, of Bail Organa talking to Mon Mothma about how he's going to go to Alderaan and, oh, you know, <laughs> I trust her with my life. And it's, it's like, this is a really unnecessary scene that's just trying to make everything line up. And 
the idea that all of these pieces need to fit together neatly is often, if not always, in opposition to like the drive of the story, the emotion of the story, the sense of excitement, because they always distract. Like in the moment, they're very distracting, but also like in a broader sense, um, they just make you think, oh yeah, I see, they're connecting this up to the next movie, and they 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 always take you out of the movie, even if it's just a oh that's a nice touch, um, and and that. Uh, there's there's kind of a fine line between dropping in little Easter eggs, like what the the Marvel movies did, where they'll have like a casual mention of a character who's going to show up later, or they have like uh, Captain America's shield show up in the background of a scene in Iron Man Two or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, there's did that that is kind of a nice thing for fans, whereas this is like screaming at someone, "Remember this from the other movie." Yeah, uh, and that is not what you want. <laughs> you don't want to have just people being. Uh, drawn out of your new story by reminding you of an older story. Mm, yeah, I have to say that the Ponder Barber, Dr. Cornelius Everzan uh, combination was too much for me. Uh, also mm. too much for me, C-3PO and R2-D2. What yeah. I did love was some of the Easter eggs that they dropped in in the background. Um, such, And this is what I mean. If you, if you want to build a, a kind of rich, textured continuity, doing things like when they're in the Rebel base and they're on Yavin, there's a call out over the, the the kind of tannoy for General Sindula, and I heard that, and I was like, "Oh, that name seems familiar." Forget about that. Get home, realize, "Oh, that's Hera from Rebels." Oh yeah. And then the ghost is in the battle scene. Uh, the the ship from cool. Rebels is in just in the background. You just see it in a few shots, and that's cool. That's like a little bit, and you know it makes sense. Like, and it kind of kind of also indicates where the TV show Rebels is going to end up because we know that it's going to come to an end very shortly. Um, and you know that would make uh, kind of a lot of sense. Uh, Buck, uh, Bucket from no, what's he called? Uh, Chopper from um, Rebels. The little droid is in the background of one of the scenes. You know, you're not going to notice it, but you do notice it when two characters from the previous scene literally stop and scream at other characters in the street. Yeah, and they act out the one thing they're known for, which apparently is being belligerent to strangers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how you get a death sentence on 10 systems. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, what else did we like about the film, Ed? Like, I mean, I like really loved... Um, the way that Cassian and Jin's relationship ended up, even though mm. I did feel like it was slightly ingenuine the way it got there. Yes. Yeah. Like they do have a, a warmth to them and they come to deeply care about each other, but it like, you don't really see the meat and potato scenes that would establish that. Mm. Yeah. You, you only see like the big moments of, them getting nearly killed multiple times uh, and then ultimately being consumed by a massive fiery explosion destroying like huge tracts of land on this planet. Mm. Uh, although that final image of them hugging against the uh, slowly approaching fireball was uh, was lovely in in you know obviously they're murdered but <laughs> that's not lovely but like the actual the composition of it and what it means as they're hugging in that final moment is you know genuinely kind of a very moving uh, and like like I was saying in terms of like something I wasn't expecting because I was I was thinking you know maybe some of these characters survive and they just decide after they've done their job you know they're going to go off into some far distant corner of the universe or whatever uh, I was not expecting them all to be killed <laughs> uh, even though 
like as I I joked to you, like you could have said the 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 plot of the movie is so that's it that's it her they were some sort of suicide squad because mm. uh, that ends up being they they genuinely were a suicide squad you know so that they did something kind of big and bold there and and I think it's a film that works really well on broad in kind of broad strokes but you know the little details are the things that end up detracting from it in a big way. Um, in terms of things I really liked, like I said, Donnie Yen was a standout for me. I really enjoyed any of the scenes where they had all of the characters together sketching out a plan mm-hmm. because it really did have a man, a man on a mission uh, feel to it. And, and I, did, I did enjoy the fact that it had multiple here come the cavalry moments, Yeah, such as once the council says they're not going to go through with the attack and uh, Cassian shows up with his kind of motley crew of extras who are going to go on, they, they volunteer to go on a, su- a mission on their own, and you think, oh, you know, that's really nice, they kind of join together, and then later on, the Rebel fleet find out that something's going on, and they show up, and like all of this, you know, the, the chaos of the final battle, though that was all wonderful. I like the fact that even though it was assembled in a way that was entirely coherent, you knew what was going on, it did the, the, the thing that Star Wars has always been good at, which is having multiple strands all coalescing at once. Uh, you have the battle on the beach, you have Jin and Cassian and uh, K2 trying to go up the elevator and to get the plans, you have the space battle, you have the attempt to shut down the shield, and it's all going on, uh, and it's all coherent, and it's all wonderful, and then it all builds to a to a satisfying climax. Um, I thought that Gareth Edwards handled that side of things, or, or Tony Gilroy, whoever did it, did that really, really well. And I think that, you know, my uh, kind of... Uh, Positive feelings towards the film overall are mainly focused on that final 45 minutes, this kind of really fantastic finale that acknowledges the chaos and the death and the cost of war whilst also being like genuinely thrilling and some of the best constructed and paced uh, action that I think Star Wars has ever seen. Mm. And it was cool that like there was a triumphant moment when the Rebel fleet turned up um, with not Admiral Akbar. Um, and they kind of, um, you know, do a good thing, and then the the Empire turn up and kill them all. Like every, literally everyone dies in that. Yeah, and uh, my favorite moment I think from it was the use of a hammerhead corvette, something that I don't think has ever existed before. Uh, <laughs> it's in it's in uh, Knights of the Old Republic and Rebels. Oh, okay, fair enough. It's a it's certainly a great name, and they you make a great use of it, which is that. They manage to disable one of two Star Destroyers and then they use the Hammerhead Corvette to force it to crash into the other Star Destroyer and then take out the shield. And I thought, that's great. That's yeah. Because my favourite moment of Return of the Jedi is the Executor being taken out and then crashing into the Death Star mm. and causing absolute widespread destruction. And I liked that as maybe kind of a callback to it, but it, was, it wasn't an empty callback. It was like, oh, this has strategic importance because now suddenly the shield is knocked out and it was cool seeing them make use of the idea of you know of space you know the wonky physics of star wars where space doesn't really act the way that space does it's basically like regular air but things float mm. uh, where they just go okay well if we just push this star destroyer into this other one uh, it will take it out and i thought that was that was a nice use of uh, a nice use of uh, something that we hadn't seen done before or, or we had done seen done before but tried in a new and interesting way Mm. Um, just going back to Jin and Cassian, um, there was something that we haven't seen in a while um, in a Star Wars movie. There was a little bit of sexual frisson uh, in there yes. as well. 
Um, so much so that when it cut to them on the beach later, I was like, there's five minutes missing here. I reckon they totally fucked. <laughs> uh, I mean, you say we've not seen sexual frisson. on. I think you are forgetting the scene of, of Anakin and Padme sitting in a field of barley and talking about the nature of love mm. and how much sand is awful. You know, that, that was uh, some real hot and heavy stuff. Yeah. But no, that like there was, I mean, also we're completely... I don't know why you're ignoring Poe and Finn, the uh, two characters with the most sexual chemistry in the history of Star Wars. Yeah, I mean that's uh, more based on fashion though, and that that <laughs> that whole Jerry Seinfeld idea of like, you know, be gay because first up you double your wardrobe. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that is literally true of those guys. Uh, but uh, no, there was a genuine frisson to it. There was a sense of you know, oh, they hate each other and now they're starting to like each other, and but even though. That relationship is not on screen consummated. Maybe, maybe that's the stuff they. Maybe that was the reason for the reshoots. Is there was a real, <laughs> there was a hardcore sex scene, in it and the Disney executives just said, um, "We're going to have to reshoot some of this." And you made it really <laughs> integral, so we're going to have to reshoot a lot of stuff. Yeah, you can see like, clearly she's holding the Death Star plans in her hand uh, and, in that scene. And every scene, someone is talking about it. Mm. Like it's just there's just we're gonna have to reshoot like seventy percent of this movie to to remove the constant references to hardcore fucking. Um, but the yeah, I liked the fact even though you know isn't consummated, there is a real sense of attraction between them, even if it's just kind of one forged in a difficult circumstances in war. You know, a kind of a Sandra Bullock, Keanu Reeves in Speed thing. Uh, you know, that is they that was that felt real. That was uh, felt like genuine human emotion these things that for a long time were banished from the Star Wars canon and uh, are now creeping back in. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think overall I was um, pretty kind of... I very much enjoyed Rogue One. Mm. Um, I do think that it did have its problems, of which we've kind of laid out here. Um, and I kind of really hope that when I see it again that I won't kind of feel that way or they'll be smoothed off. I did feel that way about... Um, uh, the Force Awakens, actually, with this time last year when we got together to record about it, I said uh, something on the lines of, uh, yeah, these bits were really crap. Uh, but then when I watched it again, I was like, oh, these bits aren't as crap as I remember it. And now I'm like, yeah, oh, this bit's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, that's that's a movie that um, I've rewatched a fair bit since it came out on Blu-ray, including twice in a single day because <laughs> I watched it once. And I thought, oh, this is really good. And then I realized I had like a couple of hours to kill. And I was like, I could watch that again. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's it's improved every time. And uh, I would hope the same for this one, or at the very least, I could have the same relationship to it that I have to Godzilla, which is that if it's on TV, I realise that it's like the last 45 minutes. I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll happily watch all of this because this is really stunning. Uh, I think uh, we should we would be remiss if we didn't mention it. Also, something that I really liked about the movie, uh, I did enjoy the diversity of the cast. I liked the fact that it's a huge, big-budget movie that casts uh, Chinese actors, a actor of Pakistani descent who is not a terrorist. I mean, he's a rebel, so I guess in a sense he is. Um, mm. If you're watching it thinking the uh, the Empire of the Good Guys, as you know, I'm sure a lot of alt-right people probably do. Yeah. But the um, the fact that you know you have these, these cast where, and I guess it can only really happen in a fantasy context, where their ethnicity was not a factor in who they were, didn't define their characters. It was entirely just the fact that these are the right actors for these roles. Uh, you know, I mean, you could have cast a white martial arts expert in the Donnie Yen role, but it wouldn't have been as compelling or as charismatic because Donnie Yen is just an amazing physical actor who's also super charismatic on screen. Mm. Uh, and I, I, that 
I think is uh, and Diego Luna obviously was was great uh, as he always is and uh, it was nice to see them cast him and not have him try and you know hide the fact that he is you know of he's Mexican he has a Mexican he has a Spanish brogue that you can't hide or you could force him to hide it and they said no we're going to let you talk the way that you talk mm. even though they made Riz Ahmed put on kind of a as he's described it an RP accent I've just thought of a great pun I'm not sure okay. it works. Spanish brogue Juan. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but then neither does choking on your own ambition. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, maybe Darth should have come to me for pun advice. Um, but anyway, that's kind of a good place to end it. Um, uh, where does it rank in the... Uh, oh, yeah, everyone's been doing this. Where does it rank in the five uh, Star Wars films that have been made up to this point, Ed? Yeah, the five and only five. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's very hard to rank against the other four because it's very different in tone and aim and also kind of genre, I guess. Even though it takes place in the same world, it does feel like a war movie. But I would say not as good as New Hope, Empire or uh, or Force Awakens, but better than Return of the Jedi. Mm, which is the nearest we've actually got to a war movie in the um, the Star Wars universe so far. Um, and it, I think what we've learned is it has slightly less impact if it involves Ewoks. Yes, yes. Uh, even less than when it was Wookiees, mm. which uh, for some reason had even less... In- actually, no, I think the, the Wookiees in Revenge of the Sith probably have make less of a kind of emotional impact than the Ewoks. Yeah. Even though they're better fighters, it's like it's not the same watching a bunch of anonymous CGI Wookiees get killed than one sad teddy bear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anonymous CGI Wookiees. Um they're a new band out of Montreal. Um <laughs> you'll love them. Anyway, they do a split EP with one sad teddy bear. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the record label they're on. One said to you. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, We'll leave it there, guys. Uh, Rogue One's good, man. Go and see it. It's better than Return of the Jedi, Um, uh, um, which is, you know, pretty decent praise, uh, given the fact that I still enjoy Return of the Jedi a lot, even though. Me too. It's pretty stupid in places. But there you go. That was a little bonus episode. Next week is the end of year show and my last podcast. Um, So until then. Adios. Bye. Here's some money. Go see a Star Wars.